take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We're studying this amazing epistle of the Apostle Paul. And it's really been one of those resetting books for the church ever since its writing. And I trust that it'll be that for us as well. Today we come to conclude the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament that we began some weeks ago. And that is verses 3 through 14. Let me read that again just so that you have the momentum of it in your mind. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We've made our way to the end of this great sentence in God's word. As we've noted for the last number of weeks, verses 3 to 14 are the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. It's a long run-on sentence originally uh, written in Greek Koine, Koine Greek rather, and penned by the Apostle Paul. Verse 3 tells us, sets the agenda that the substance of this sentence is to outline and itemize the spiritual blessings that a Christian has because he believes in Christ, because he's accepted and received the gospel. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verses 4 to 14 are an itemized list of such blessings that every believer enjoys. And we've taken our time kind of working through those uh, verses, those phrases, those words that outline those blessings. Well, the sentence comes to a climax Here in the passage we're looking at today in verses 11 to 14, actually the last two words of verse 10 and then into verse 14. And that is an amazing understanding of the Trinity. 
This is a remarkable way to climax this sentence. The gift comes to a believer, a gift comes to a believer, rather, in what Paul calls a pledge. A pledge. Now, what I need to do is go to the very end and grab this pledge, bring it back to the beginning, and we're going to see how we get there, if that's okay. Look at verse 13. You were sealed in him, that is in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, what God owns, to the praise of his glory. A pledge is something held as a security to guarantee fulfillment of an obligation. It's a guarantee. It's a deposit for a possession. Now, maybe the best way to understand that is our idea of earnest money. If you've ever bought a house or if you're ever going to buy a house, you will come to know what this term earnest means. You pledge an earnest or you give earnest money toward that house. It's basically a sum of money that you put down before closing on a house to show how serious you are about actually paying for that house. It's a guarantee that you're going to buy it. It's also known as a good faith deposit. In the most amazing way, this passage before us shows us that God put down earnest, a good faith deposit on his purchase. And his purchase is us, is you as a believer. Oh, one day we will move into heaven. But before that, God put down a deposit on us and with us and for us. And this passage highlights that. As we shall see, this was not money and it wasn't a commodity that God put down. Just hold this in your mind till we get here in verse uh, 14. But God put himself down, the Holy Spirit, as our deposit pledge of his purchase of his children. Now, as we've noted a few times during our study of this long sentence, it can be broken down in two major ways. The, the first is by, by time, past, present, and future. The past, a believer's predestination from eternity past. The present, our redemption and forgiveness that we experience before God right now in our salvation. And a believer's future, which we looked at last week, that's enjoying the fullness of the times and knowing what's coming. We can also follow the flow of thought by considering the persons of the Trinity. What God the Father, what God the Son, what God the Holy Spirit are doing and accenting in this passage. In this final section of this long sentence that Paul gives, he gives us a view of the workings of the Trinity. Full confession, I I looked at most of the commentaries over the last few weeks and months, looking at this last section and thought, oh, that's all about the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot about the Holy Spirit in these verses. But it's really all about the Godhead. It's all about the Trinity. All three persons of the Trinity show up in this last little section. In fact, the guarantee of our salvation is secured through three benefits given by our triune God. Three benefits that we're going to see. Three amazing graces that God gives us. God's glorious guarantee is provided in this passage. 
And as we look at it, we're going to see three Trinitarian blessings that guarantee salvation's benefits. Three Trinitarian, all three members of the Trinity will show up here, three Trinitarian blessings that guarantee salvation's benefits. Just as you and I want guarantees, we want warranties. If you're buying a car, you're always confronted with should you buy an extended warranty. If you, if you buy a washer or a dryer or a refrigerator, you're always looking at should I get the warranty, should I get the guarantee. God actually provides his own guarantee for our salvation. He gives us proof in the pudding, as it were. Three Trinitarian blessings that guarantee salvation's benefits. The first, and we're going to have something about the Father, something about the Son, and something about the Spirit. The first is we are possessed by God the Father. Possessed by the Father. At the end of verse 10, in Him, that goes with verse 11, in Him we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, we need to roll up our sleeves for just a minute because the first issue we need to tackle in looking at this verse is a translation issue. This verse can be translated in an alternate way. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, look over at the, the side reference or the footnote. It will tell you right there that there is an alternate way to translate this verse. You see it there in verse 11? We have obtained, we've been given an inheritance. And we typically think of that as something that you would get from your parents after they die or they would will their, their, their um, material possessions or their, their finances to you. We've been given an inheritance. And the verse can be translated that way. And if that's your conclusion, you're not going to be wrong theologically. However, if you look over at the side reference, it can be translated, or we, we were made an inheritance. We were made a heritage. Now, it would not serve you well, to be honest, I had about a page and a half of of nuances of, of Greek passive verbs and participles I was going to try to explain to you, but there would be a few seminary students who would understand that and the rest of you would yawn and roll your eyes. So let me just say that it would not serve you well to explain all those Greek nuances of a passive Greek verb, but the short of it is there are a couple of ways to translate this first part of verse 11. And I, I take... The alternate translation is probably the best way to look at this. The question that we have to answer is, are we as believers given an inheritance, or are we as believers the inheritance given to God that he gives himself? Now, frankly, both of those are true. We are given so much of an inheritance in Christ. All the riches that we'll get one day in glorification are ours to be inherited one day. But at the translation, we were claimed by God as his inheritance, I think is the best way to understand this. This is terrible, but unless you know Greek, you're just going to have to trust me and the translators. Because even the original translators of the NAS put a footnote that said, well, this is not the only way to see this. I prefer the alternate translation for the record. I think this idea is in keeping contextually with the passage and also with God in the Old Testament. 
In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, the nations of the world are assigned to the sons of God, that is, to the various angelic beings, but the Lord retains Israel as his own personal possession. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations as their inheritance, he separated the sons of man. He set boundaries on the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Verse 9. For the Lord's inheritance, the Lord's portion, is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his own inheritance. So all the way back to the Song of Moses, there was this idea that his people would be his own inheritance to himself. Further, I'm convinced that the Greek grammar and the context of the sentence indicate the translation probably could go like this. In him also we were made an inheritance, a heritage, a legacy. We were made that, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I don't want to belabor it, but a few contextual factors are important here. First of all, God's predestination is brought up again. We saw it also in verse 5. The idea speaks of God as choosing spiritually adopted children for his own possession. Believers are his possession. He chose them as his adopted sons and daughters in verse 5. He also comes back to predestination here in verse 11. And I think when you link those together, it's speaking of God's possession, which lends its, the interpretation or the translation, rather, that we are God's possession ourselves. Also, look down at verse 14 for a moment. Verse 14 is very interesting. The Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, if that was something he gave us, you know, the spiritual blessings we're going to enjoy in heaven, you probably wouldn't hear what he says next. A pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of what? God's own possession. See it there? So the context is that we are God's blessings. We are God's possession. We are God's adopted sons. We are God's predestined people to give him glory. Also, the grammatical construction that I'm not going to bore you with in that, that first part of verse 11 seems best to take it as a passive verb, seeing it referring to believers assigned to God as his inheritance. Now, having said all that, if you, are, if you say, well, I, I like you, Rick, you're, you're a neat guy and a, and a decent pastor, but I, I prefer the New American Standard translators, you're not going to be in theological error if you go with the translation in verse 11. Just know that the translators themselves knew that they needed to put a footnote over to the side that this could alternately be translated another way. I think it's amazing and wonderful that we as believers are God's inheritance and blessing and heritage to himself. Link that to the next phrase. Having been, we come back to what we saw in verse 5, predestined, chosen beforehand according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We unpacked this quite uh, for some weeks when we looked at verses 4 to 6. Just notice this. Look at that. Predestination, a believer's predestination, look at the verse, is first of all, according to God's intentionality, according to his purpose, it says. This was not 
happenstance. He didn't look down the corridors of time to see who chose him and he chose them. This was his purpose. Also, it was according to his ability. His purpose, who works all things? God is the one who wills and God is the one who works. And thirdly, it's according to God's will and decree, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Christians have been predestined according to God's plan, according to God's purpose, his intentionality. And anyone, anyone, everyone who comes to faith in Christ does so not by chance, not by circumstance, not by coercion, not by unaided choice, but by the enabling of God's Spirit according to his purpose. That will be very good news in a few weeks when we get to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Because unless he had done that for us, as dead men and women, we would have never done that ourselves. Notice also that God does everything after the counsel of his own will, especially our salvation. This is another cousin verse to Romans eight twenty eight. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Same idea. His purpose is his will. He always accomplishes his will. God has never said, whoops, uh-oh, in his existence. And all of this in Ephesians 1 points to the reality that God is gracious, God is good, God is sovereign, and God can be trusted. So, kind of backing up from this, we as his believers, I believe, are his possessions. He will care for us as his very own adopted sons and daughters that verse 5 tells us we are. That's the work of the Father. He's purposeful. He's intentional. He's kind. He's good. He's sovereign. He has a will. He doesn't make mistakes. And as we transition from the work of the Father to the work of the Son in verse 12, pay special attention to the pronouns. There's a lot of pronouns here that are important. You have... um, uh, uh, two we's. The we is used twice. Our is used. And there are three you's. So you have we, our, and you. Those are going to be really important as we transition through looking at who are the recipients of these blessings. Just hold that in your mind for a few minutes. So the first Trinitarian blessing that guarantees our salvation's benefits is the Father. We're possessed by God. We're going to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of salvation, first of all, because we are God's possession and he intends to treat us as such. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Secondly, we are commended through the Son. We are commended through the Son. Possessed by the Father, commended through the Son. To the end, I love that phrase, to the end. God always has purposes. God always has goals. God always has reasons that he does what he does. To the end, he has in mind what the end of this possession of us is, our adoption as sons and daughters. To the end, for the purpose, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, the first question we have to ask is, who is we? To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. Well, he tells us who the we are. 
They were the first generation of believers, Paul and those early Jews, who were the very first generation to believe the gospel. At first glance, it might seem that Paul's talking about all Christians, that is the same beneficiaries of all the other blessings in, of Christ mentioned in verses 3 to 10, and that, that is true theologically, and we can certainly apply that as a timeless truth for us, but he's primarily talking about he and the first Jewish believers. I think it's a reference to Paul and his fellow Jewish believers. It can be seen by the contrast, by the way, to the Gentile readers referred to as you in verse 13. We'll pay attention to the we's and the you's in just a moment. Now, back in verse 5, God's adoption of believers was purposed to the praise of his glorious grace. That phrase, to the praise of his glory, grace being added one time in verse 5, shows up three times in the sentence. Here, we also are, to, are the praise of his glory. In other words, the goal for which those who first hoped in Christ were chosen as the Lord's inheritance to be to the praise of his glory so that everyone could see that salvation works and how salvation works. William Hendrickson writes this. If then God's decree from eternity is thus all-embracing, and if it is fully carried out in history, and if the destiny of his children was included in this plan, then Paul and the readers have no reason whatsoever for boasting in themselves. Whether they are or have to do what, whatever they are and have or do is from God. Hence, in a language similar to that employed in the verse 6 above, Paul concludes this section by saying this, to the end that we should be to the praise of his glory, we who beforehand had centered our hope in Christ. When viewed from the perspective of, end quote, from the perspective of the Trinity, we observe that any believer's commendation comes through the Son. Sure, that was Paul and those first Jewish Christians, but also we too, as we'll see later in chapter 2 and chapter 3, are to the praise of the glory of his grace through the Son. It may be specifically referencing Paul and that first generation of believers, but I think the principle still holds true that we as Christians are commended to God, by God, for God, through Jesus and his redemptive work. Turn the page, look it over at chapter 2, verse 7. We've been raised up in him, with him in verse 6, seated with him in the heavenly places in verse 6, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come he's going to show, he's going to glorify himself in believers. So they were to the praise of the glory of God. And so are you if you believe. So are you if you believe. Commended through the Son. Someday we'll look at this, probably when we get into chapter 3, but we'll go back and look that Jesus in John 6, in John 14, and in John 16, Jesus gives you and me as believers let me say it this way. The Father gives Jesus, you and me as believers, a love gift, and it's you. 
That's the father and that's the son. The bulk of this passage actually anchors itself on the spirit. And we come to our third Trinitarian blessing that guarantees salvation's benefits. We are possessed by the Father. We are commended through the Son. Thirdly, we are sealed with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. In Him, there's our phrase again, in Christ, you also, now he's talked about himself and the first Jewish believers who were the first to hope in Christ. They were the praises of glory. Also you. See how he can stitch that blessing to them? In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ, in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view, a perspective, to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. There's an order and a rhythm here about faith that we need to follow in verse 13. First of all, it says, in him, specificity about Jesus. The gospel specifically has to do with Jesus. Listening to the message of truth, specificity about the gospel. You listen to the message of truth. It's a great catchphrase for the gospel. It's a message that's true from God, about God, with God. We also have specificity about personal belief. The gospel of your salvation, having also believed it's personal. God has no grandchildren. Kids don't get in because of their parents. It's only personal faith in the gospel itself. You, your salvation, you having also believed. And then he goes to specificity about the Holy Spirit's work, his sealing and the giving of him to us. Let's kind of break that down. Paul says that we were, interesting word, sealed in him with the promise Holy Spirit. What does this mean, sealed? Interesting word, sealed. It's the word used um, for when you roll up a scroll, and the way they would authenticate a scroll was that you would, you would roll part of the scroll, and then you would drop wax on it, and you would, you would stamp your, your signet ring into that wax. Then you'd roll it up more and do it again so that every time you rolled uh, around, it was sealed in different places. So that as you unrolled a scroll, you would come to a seal and break the seals. That's the imagery, the exact imagery in the book of Revelation beginning in chapter, t- chapter 6 where the scroll, the title deed to the earth is unscrolled, it's, it's unfurled and as it does, these seals snap, they break, they're, they're seen. That's the word seal. It's authenticating, it makes something obviously genuine to its author. It has the signet ring stamped in it. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In this life, Christians have yet, we have yet to experience the fullness of our salvation. However, Paul promises that God will one day bring about his final redemption and the promise is that he has left us his signet ring, his seal on us, with us. How did he do that? By giving, by sending 
by leaving the Holy Spirit. In order to understand this, we have to go back to John chapter 14. Turn over to John 14 for a moment. John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus is spending this last evening with his, his friends. They are, they are um, uh, talking about ultimate things, lasting things. His last words were lasting words. At some point during the supper, in John 14, Jesus begins in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, another helper, one who comes alongside you, that he may be with you forever. Why is that important? Because Jesus has been telling them for years, and especially for weeks, and especially for days, and in this hour, this very hour, that he was going to leave them. And so the fact that he says, listen, someone is going to come and be with you forever was significant. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. Well, that's important. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a, a mystical kind of, of, uh, of, of gas that kind of surrounds the earth. Him. The Holy Spirit is a person because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. Can I just say something, about, by the way? In this passage where Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit, he also promises himself to come and the Father to come as well. I, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you, the ultimate spiritual solidarity. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. There is a present tense experiential disclosure that a believer can have with Jesus Judas not Iscariot said to him Lord what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world Jesus answered and said if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we now we have the Holy Spirit being sent we have Jesus promising to come and now he says we the father and me we will come to make our abode with him Yes, the Holy Spirit is sent. But Jesus promises to come and the Father with him. You understand that this passage promises the permanent abiding presence of the Trinity with us. He who comes does not, he who does not love me does not keep my words and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, verse 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Turn over to John 16, verse 5. He follows up on this subject of sending of the Holy Spirit 
with some more specificity here. John 16, verse 5. But I am going to him who sent me, and none you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. For I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. Very important. We're going to come back to that. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes care of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Take all that with you and now come back to Ephesians 1.14. Verse 14. Who, that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge, a good faith deposit of our inheritance, of us being the inheritance to God, I think. This word pledge is arabone, the payment of a purchase plot price in advance. First installment, a deposit, a down payment, a pledge. I think the context here indicates that the Holy Spirit was given to us as the down payment for our eternal dwelling and fellowship with God after we die. It brings us back to where we began. As Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, his sealing, he's looking to God's ownership and God's protection of his chosen. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.21? Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Same exact language. Spirits in our hearts That means there is experience and experience with the spirit that a believer has. And remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon this morning. God actually gave himself to us in the Holy Spirit as his pledge of his purchase to of his children. Wow, remember the context here. He is grouping Gentile believers as recipients of the Holy Spirit of promise with himself and other Jewish believers who first trusted in the message of the gospel. Look at the phrase, verse 14. With a view, we've seen that before, with a view to the fullness of times, he gave us a peak, with a peak, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Literally, redemption of possession, being possessed by God the praise of his glory. Peter understood this, wrote of this with great detail and specificity 
In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, You, Jews and Gentiles, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own inheritance or possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What an amazing gift. The gift is you to the Godhead from the Godhead as a possession. God sealed and God guaranteed Gentile believers with the gift of his Holy Spirit. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at that in the coming chapters. And God gave them, God gave us, with a view of our immediate and final redemption as his prized possession. Speaking specifically to the Gentiles, can you look over at chapter 2, verse 12, just for a, a quick moment? Speaking to the Gentiles, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God changed that. But now, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he talks about the fact, he's going to go on to say, therefore Jews and Gentiles ought to be together in solidarity and in fellowship because of Christ. The reality that Gentile believers would be the Lord's treasure possession was amazing news indeed. They had been separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the blessings of God through the covenant people. And now they've been brought near. All of that leads to that last phrase, to the praise of God's glory. The praise of his glory. You know, glory is, glory is one of those Christian words that we sing about, we talk about, we, we rarely think about though. And the best way to understand glory is to combine the Old Testament concept and the New Testament concept. The Old Testament concept of glory is the word kavoth. Interesting word. It actually means weighty or substantial. It's picking up something and it's far heavier than you thought it was. It's heavy, substantial. The word doxa is, for the Greek word for glory, is light. It's brilliance. John sees the glory of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. He says he's brighter than the sun. And I've told you the illustration before that's that's so powerful to me that when you look at the sun, and I don't suggest this, kids, don't look at the sun, but if you glance at the sun even for a second and close your eyes, what do you see? The sun. And there's a reason for that. The sun is so bright that it actually temporarily paralyzes the nerves on the back of your retina. If you look at it for an extended period of time, it will paralyze them permanently and then you, you lose your sight. 
It's a fitting illustration for the glory of Christ that if we were to look at him even for a second and turn away or close our eyes, the imprint and the image is still there. We are to the praise of how great and glorious God is. Peter Bryan helps us with this summary. The eulogy of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 began with an outburst of praise as Paul blessed God for all the blessings he has shown and showered on his people in Jesus Christ. The note of praise has been sustained throughout the, the means of recruit, the recurring refrain to the praise of his glory, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. The recipients of these wide-ranging blessings of salvation, along with Paul, have been stimulated by the recital of God's mighty acts in his Son to express their gratitude and praise, end quote. The rehearsing of God's mighty acts through Christ ought to make us praise his glory. Now, after hearing this passage, you probably have the same question that most have, or certainly that I would have, which is, well, if the Holy Spirit was given to me or giving to someone as a seal to prove that we are his, how can I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Fair question, right? And if we go back and summarize what we learned in John 14 and in John 16 with what's mixed here in Ephesians 1, I think there are some ways to tell. So how can you tell if you have the Holy Spirit? Can I give you three quick bullet points? These are three good takeaways. How can you be sure you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? How can you? Number one, you believe the truth of God in Scripture. You believe the truth of God in Scripture. This is actually in our verse, in verse 13, in our passage. You, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. John 14, John 16. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, will lead you into all truth. If you believe the gospel, if you believe the truth, if the scriptures are attractive to you, if you're drawn to them, that's an indicative. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. It's working in you. No, not perfectly. It doesn't mean you will never miss a morning quiet time ever again. It does mean that you believe the truth of God in Scripture and you're attracted to it. You're growing in it. The Holy Spirit comes to give us a relationship with God's truth and evidence of His work in our lives is an attraction to His truth. Look, you come and listen to preaching every week, you read your Bibles, you read your uh, uh, books about God and His Word. I mean, you, you've spent, I don't know, 15, 16 sermons and we're not even that many verses into Ephesians 1. I think m- most of you show an evidence of having an attraction to God's truth. But test your heart. Basically, it's as simple as this. Is the Bible meaningful to me? If it is, that's an evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. It's proof that you have been sealed. Secondly, you're convicted about your sin and you're convicted by your sin. When the Holy Spirit comes in the world, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness. That's the world and us. We will know the difference between right and wrong, righteousness and sin. 
He has come, and if you're, let's say it this way, if your conscience is alive to God, that's a good evidence that you're truly converted. That's different than saying if your conscience is alive. Some people's consciences can be alive, and they just have a guilty conscience about everything. That's not what this is talking about. The Holy Spirit will convince you of your own personal sin as a violation before God. He'll let you understand what David understood when he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband, Uzziah, um, um, Uriah. And he will make you see that your sin is personally against God. He'll convict you of that. One of the, honestly, one of the, think of Hebrews 12, a father disciplines the ones he loves and so does the, our father. One of, the, one of the greatest evidences in my own heart that I'm converted is I can't get away with anything without feeling bad about it. That's a good thing. Your conscience works. So you believe the truth of God and Scripture. You're convinced about your sin and by your sin. And thirdly, your heart is compelled to know and love Jesus Christ. Your heart is compelled to know and love Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will point to and speak of me. The centrality of Christ in your faith and in your life is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work there. So are you sealed? There are ways to know. Your relationship with the Scripture, your understanding of your sin, your compelling love for Jesus Christ. If you have those three, you have a very strong indicator, set of indicators, that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But if you don't, if Scripture and God's truth is not attractive to you, if your sin is easily dismissed, justified, and if Jesus is not attractive to you, that might be indicative of the fact that you need to come to know Christ and be sealed by His Spirit. What a gift. What a gift you are to the Godhead from the Godhead because of the Godhead. We're his possession. Sealed and made it given a deposit by the Spirit of God until one day our faith will become sight.